You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, and today we'll be talking about decodable texts. We talked to Elise Lovejoy about the purpose of decodable texts, what makes a text decodable, and what to look for in higher quality decodable texts. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. We're so excited because today we are talking about a very important and, might I add, very hot topic, decodable texts. Absolutely. And so today we have Elise Lovejoy here with us to talk about the decodable texts. She's an educator, a mother, an inspiring advocate for literacy, a business owner, and she developed a series of decodable texts called Express Readers. So perfect person to talk to. Yeah. Hi, so thank you so here. much for having me. I'm so excited. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Well, we're so excited to learn more about you and how you became an advocate for and a writer of decodable texts, because we know you're a teacher and now you're a decodable text writer. So how did that happen? Well, beginning at the beginning of my science of reading journey, I think I knew that something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And I was watching kids try to practice what I was teaching them and realizing that I wasn't getting the aha moment with reading. And I don't know if other teachers feel this way, but I, I chase that. I chase yeah. that aha moment <laughs> with my For kiddos. Sure. And so I wanted to see them laughing and enjoying the reading instead of it just being this rote activity that came after learning phonics. And so I started writing these books and I wrote them alongside my class. And if the kids laughed, I kept the book. And if they didn't, I didn't. Um, um, because if I had to read one more book about a cat that sat on a mat, I was going to lose it. Or like um, a garage that opens and people go in and out. I mean, I have like a vivid memory from when Presley was little and my husband still like jokes about it. He's like, oh, that book, The Garage. I'm like, that really stuck with you too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Yeah, it just seemed like there was there was a place for books that were funnier, had full storylines, um, but were more decodable because the ones yeah. that were funnier and had storylines were not as decodable. So then I would get my kids and they would say, I'm reading or they get that look on their face and I started to chase it. So I wrote more and more and I followed those kids to first grade. And so then I wrote more and more and it just <laughs> became, you know, and the kids would say, what's dog going to do next? <laughs> Yeah, That's really sweet. <laughs> um, as far as the advocacy, I think just now that I am not in the classroom as a classroom teacher, it's become a very different place for me because as a classroom teacher, there is a bit of a there is difficulty speaking up when you know that something is not going right. And being a mom and an educator that doesn't have that hanging over me, I am much more free to speak about my feelings about how, um, you know, my feelings about the knowledge that's out there, not just my feelings, but about how we should be teaching reading to match the way that kids are learning. 
Yeah, that makes so much sense. Well, we thank you for the work that you're doing to advocate (laughs) for it. I want to like back us up a little bit just, you know, for the sake of any audience members out there listening who are like, yeah, I've heard the term decodable text, Mm -hmm. but I don't even really quite know what it means. So can we start at the real basic level Mm -hmm. of just like what (laughs) makes a text decodable? So there is a subjective piece to this, or not a subjective piece necessarily, but it depends on what you are teaching your kids. Decodable books are decodable based on what sounds or sound spellings kids know. So if I've taught a child the sound of C, short A, and T, they can read cat, but they can't read kitty. So I'm looking for words that kids can read using the skills that I've taught them. That being said, um, decodable books come in a range of forms. You know, we've got our fiction, we have our nonfiction, we've got, um, you know, ones that follow different scope and sequence. Um, so you you do, as a teacher, have to be kind of critical about what is the decodable book I'm using in my class. As the kids get further along, there's way more that is decodable for them. But at the beginning, we kind of have to see what have I taught so far. Yeah, that is really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking too about like, um, you know, sometimes we talk about maybe we should put decodable text in the library. And I'm not saying we can't do that. But mm-hmm. I also like take what you just said that, you know, it does really matter what has been taught and mm-hmm. they might not be as useful in a library as they m- probably are in a classroom. Right. Well, and, but in a library, one of the things that I, I do always say is that um, if the skills are within the range of the student. So if we're giving them a ton of text that's irregular or way above their level, that's different. But you could have a level of decodable readers where you could say, oh, we haven't learned that one yet, but it's buh, you know, and the kids then can easily be introduced to something that's within their grasp. If they're like the example that you just gave, if it's maybe just one thing that's within their grasp Mm -hmm. versus five things would be Mm -hmm. much more overwhelming and probably not building confidence. Like what I'm assuming decodable texts do. I know you're going to get to that, but (laughs) (laughs) I, I always like to say too, it's like, think about it. Um, like your math, like teaching math, because reading is a code. It's something that has to be taught explicitly because it's not like learning to speak. You know, we don't just learn it. It's not osmosis. They don't just <laughs> grab it. And now there are going to be kids that do. I mean, it's pretty impressive. But but the general, the general teaching of reading needs to be done explicitly. So that being said, um, if you take it alongside math, we teach kids the letters. Or sorry, we teach kids the numbers. We teach them what they look like, what they're made of. That's kind of like teaching our letters and our letter sounds or sound spellings. Then we teach them maybe adding. We don't then go ahead and give them calculus as their independent work. So that's like giving a book, a decodable book. Decodable books are for practice of what you're learning. So you're going to have to give them something that goes along with that. And that's what we mean by decodable. You can decode each of the words that's in there. Maybe not every single one, but the majority. That's really helpful. I like that comparison. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I like analogies. They help, they help us too. understand really it. <laughs> so along those lines, we know that there are lots of decodable texts out there. I mean... There's social media posts about them every day. There, mm-hmm. We come across them in our own world for our own children. 
what makes a quality decodable text? Like, what should we look for? Well, the great news is that there are lots of decodable authors nowadays that are making good ones. So you have a selection, which I think is incredible, you know, based on kids, interests, um, you know, ability level. Um, I think, though, what makes a quality decodable book is that it isn't dry, necessarily. We want our kids to to connect what they're learning to reading, but we want them to know that reading is fun from the beginning. Um, and it also to have storylines or be mm-hmm. relatable in some way for kids. So it's not, um, you know, just a list of, of words that they're reading off because that's not really a book. Um, so it's looking yeah, for and some I think that like meat. old school decodables have that kind of feature. That's what yeah. I remember. I mean, I'm even thinking back to when press was reading them like six years ago. I feel like that that what you just described was very much like mm-hmm. a cat sat on a mat with a rat. Mm-hmm. And, I ha- you know, I don't want to say yeah. wearing because that seems like yeah, not decodable. <laughs> maybe there was a hat with a hat. <laughs> and I just I was like, uh, OK, mm-hmm. well, I don't know anything better right now, but I know this isn't good. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking well, I of like always- Elisa's students who said like what's happening next right like you yeah. can't you can't ask that when <laughs> there's no yeah. story there well and it's yeah. also great to be able to use decodable text for independent practice of other things so like I always say you know if we can use a book to talk about character or setting or major events now it's not going to be extremely complex, but it's the beginning stages. So even our youngest kids and our earliest learners can do those things and they can do it while reading themselves. So that reading comprehension piece on their own just comes in so much sooner. Yeah. Well, and I feel like it would be really confusing if you were asking like what happened in this text and then the text didn't actually even make any sense, right? Right. (laughs) I mean, that's even, I feel like doing some damage. (laughs) If you're like, well, I can't really tell you what happened because there was no plot to that story. (laughs) Yeah. I I find myself faking it sometime with my own son. He's, he's six, almost seven. And, you know, I buy other people's decodable books and sometimes I haven't seen them yet. And, and I kind of have to go, oh, well, I think <laughs> what they're saying. <laughs> it's more fun when there is actually this, the students can find the meaning in it. At least it, along those lines, I just want to clarify for mm-hmm. people. I, I mean, you just mentioned how like you can do like kind of a light touch on comprehension. Mm-hmm. But the I, I don't know how to say it, but I'm trying to say like the real purpose of a decodable yeah. text. Like, can you get to the like? Yeah, so. So decodable text is obviously practice for what we're learning, right? And the more you practice something, the better you get at it. So the goal out of everything is to be able to comprehend what we're reading so we can pull meaning from it or we can get knowledge out of something. So we would then be reading to learn, right? Right. So if a child is practicing something again and again, um, and maybe in different ways and fun ways, and they're being able to pull you know, beginning meaning out of it, their accuracy gets better, their fluency gets better. And with fluency comes reading comprehension. I know that myself, if I don't practice something, I'm not good at it. I'm not a whiz at anything. There wasn't anything I picked up and just knew how to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) or did really well. I would love to be that person, but I'm not. So, you know, I have to practice at things. And that's the same thing with kids. And that's exactly what I tell my son. He'll say, I can't read um, because he's he's in a classroom with leveled readers right now and, and feeling that that stress. And um, 
And I've said to him, you can. There are just certain types of books while you're learning that you can read. And it's got to be the stuff that you know so you can practice. And so he told me the other night, Mommy, can you keep writing your books until I learn how to read? Oh, my gosh. My heart. (laughs) I know. Right? I love that. I know that in our pre-call you shared um, a study where – Children had a raised heart rate looking mm-hmm. at words that they couldn't decode. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that yeah. really struck me. So there's actually been multiple studies on uh, on children's heart rate involved in not being able to read required reading. So we're not saying like putting books in front of kids. That's so important that kids look through books, that they you know have a rich environment with all kinds of different literacy. But when we are requiring a student to read those words, if they can read 20% or less, their heart rate is raised to that of of an adult in a car crash. And when I think of that, I think of my kiddos having anxiety like that. Mm -hmm. I'm very quick (laughs) to realize that I need to look at what I'm asking them to do. You know, um, so there's been lots of studies on this, actually. And it's just that the heart rate had the anxiety behind looking at a bunch of words that we don't know. I often put in front of teachers when I'm when I'm training, I put um, code like little symbols and I turn them into words. I attach a sound to each one and, and it's all this big, long code. And I say, OK, go ahead and read this. And they don't know the code yet. And it's like, well, all right, that's. Okay, crazy lady. That's it. I can't read any of that. Um, and I explain this is what it's like. We have right. to learn how to attach meaning to each one of these symbols and and you know, sounds to the code. And and so when we're giving a child something where they don't have the skills to do it, to pull it apart, and they don't haven't seen it before, they basically from the get feel like a failure. Yeah. And that's the opposite of what we as teachers want to do. We want to encourage them to feel good about themselves, take, take um, you know, small risks that, that they're safe in our classroom and in our environments. And something like a decodable book does that because you're saying to a child, I, I have taught you something. Here is where you can practice it uh, without fear of tons and tons of failure. Right. <laughs> you know, there'll be mistakes, but but that's part of learning. So at least I've seen different numbers for percentages of how mm-hmm. how decodable a decodable text should be. Right. Do you have a an opinion on that matter? I do. Um, I don't know that there's a huge amount of science behind what what I am saying in the sense that the research base isn't isn't all there yet because decodables are so different based on yeah. program. Um, but we try with our books to to stay between um, at the lowest seventy five percent and at the highest ninety. Um, there's always going to be words that you're going to come across and, and we find it really important. So we call them out and lots of really good decodables do that. They call out the words that are irregular or cannot be decoded yet. So I always say that. Ooh, to that's kids. so helpful. Such a hot tip for <laughs> teachers listening right yes. now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Write that I down. Say you, you <laughs> write it down. Like, don't, like, don't throw away the books just because there are, yes. are some words that you know your students haven't gotten to yet. Mm-hmm. That's that's okay. <laughs> yeah. And I, I also said, um, I was talking to a group of teachers the other day and I said, you know, when I was growing up, you didn't, you didn't write in your books, right? You didn't, you didn't mark up books. You never put a pencil or a marker in a book. As a teacher, though, and as a mom now, go on. Circle those words. 
cross them out and write one that's easier uh, or, you know, decodable by that child's standards. No problem with that. Use books. I mean, we, we have so many in our classroom. There's nothing wrong with, with circling, you know, the eight words in it that I'm going to read those words when we get to them because we haven't learned those skills yet. I want you to try the other words. Yeah. And talk about that heart rate. If I were that child, I would <laughs> be like, oh, okay, let me just take a breath. That feels great. My teacher's going to help me with the yeah. words that I don't know yet. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Respectful. <laughs> yeah. And respectful of their learning process. I mean, you know, we don't we don't learn something the first time and just get it. Like I was saying, not my skill. So no. it, it's respectful of the fact that they need to practice in order to do it. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. speaking of that practice and thinking about the classroom experience and decodable text in the classroom, can right. you talk a little bit about how we could use decodable text in the classroom? Like, let's get real practical mm-hmm. here. Okay. Um, I, so the way that I would use decodable books and the way that we promote it and express readers is actually in small groups. It is something that you have identified where the kids are, what skills they are using t- to mastery or they're, you know, trying to to practice to mastery. And then we have specific books, depending on which group you have. Um, we often do a sticky word hunt. Sorry, sticky word is our sight words, the words you get stuck mm-hmm. on. So whether it's heart words, sticky words, whatever you might call them, we do a, a sticky word hunt. Can you find those words? We might map those words first to remind the kids what sounds are irregular or haven't been learned yet. Um, and then depending on the level of student, we sometimes um, color the capital letter in green, the first letter in a sentence, and the end mark in red. So we work on on our tone when we're reading, where to stop um, at the early levels, very early, maybe not. Um, and then we practice reading it. So not they're not copying me. They are actually decoding the book. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this Can I is ask also, a real yeah. nuanced question? Do it. Okay. So <laughs> when you say you use them in small group. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I'm just thinking I'm the teacher right now. I have my yep. kids in small group. I am thinking about what I've taught in whole group. Right. And what they should know, right? Maybe I have an mm-hmm. assessment with me that helps me know what they should know or what they struggled with in that whole group. And then I bring them over to me in small group. I'm like, okay, we're going to work on this because you showed mm-hmm. me from whole group that you needed this. Right. Is I like, I really want to like take a moment and just kind of like debunk the idea that in small group, we're doing something different for each child. That small group is like an extension of what they need from whole group. Is that right? It is, it is, but I, it is definitely, I definitely believe that, but we don't have utopia. Our classrooms are not, Right. there may be kids who need Mm -hmm. more. Well, there may be kids that need more and there might be kids that need extensions. Yeah, that's true. I have never been in a class where I had one group of kids doing all the same thing. So we might teach a whole class lesson, but I've also had years as a teacher where I have to teach, quote unquote, two whole class lessons. So I have to divide the class for the main lesson because the kids just aren't there yet. And we do really do, you know, we try to teach to where our kids are at so that we can help them go faster. Um, 
it doesn't it doesn't do them any service to require them to go above where they are um, mm-hmm. if they're not ready or they're not there yet. So I'm so glad that we're talking about this. It's like <laughs> such a nuanced question, and I feel like we mm-hmm. could probably talk all day about this. Oh, I, th- there's a whole there's a a teacher's job is so difficult, obviously for so many reasons, but just the levels of kids. Um, I know with our program, we give our K-1, we give the entire K-1 to each grade level, to each K and one, because you have kids that are just so across the span. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that, but man, does it make a teacher's job a whole other world, (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) You know, it's not like like when you're a doctor, here goes my analogies. It's like when you're a doctor, you know, um, it's being the general practitioner that has all of these patients with different needs versus being like a neuro, oh gosh, help me out, neurosurgeon, you know, who's just dealing with the brain. (laughs) It's, we have all of the different types of kids. Um, And so, yes. I love that analogy too, because you're like, but they they get to see everybody one-on-one and (laughs) a teacher has to everybody at the same time. (laughs) Well, so then think about it that way too. A teacher has to know how to meet all of those levels, all -hmm. those different ability, abilities and how to fill in the gaps. I mean, it really is so intricate when you're teaching reading. And I think that's part of the reason that all of this discussion is so difficult because- Reading is 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 multi-layered. Um, but yes, when we're talking about the small groups, it it doesn't necessarily start with the idea that everybody has something different. A lot of the kids will be in a whole class lesson. You know, we're teaching a phonic structure. We might be teaching about, you know, character and setting. We might, and then we go and, and work further on that. So like, let's say I'm using a decodable book. The way that I would do it is I would base the decodable book off the phonics lesson that we're doing. Maybe we were working on short U and I'd say, okay, I want you to take an orange crayon and I want you to go color over every short U in this book, every uh that you see. Um, And of course, that decodable book would not have any long (laughs) U in it. It would have just what they've been practicing. And so the kids would go do that. And and we're teaching them like the beginning stages of orthographic mapping because they're starting to understand how to find the pieces within words, the sounds within, sound spellings within words. Elise, I'm wondering, I, I can't remember who we talked to, Lori, you might remember, um, but talking about this specific process of like when you're actually in the small group with your students and you mentioned it, like you aren't doing the work, they are, mm-hmm. but that this can be kind of a frustrating time for teachers or like, you know, because the kids are, <laughs> they, they're they they're working to try and figure out these words. Right. Do you have any like thoughts or stories about that or what, what it's like <laughs> to be on, on that side as a teacher to not just like jump in and oh, this is the word and mm-hmm. just give it to them? You know, I think there's so many skills that we learn as teachers um, that we have to incorporate when we're in small groups. Um, in a lot of a lot of what I would do in small groups wasn't necessarily the talking. So children are trying to sound things out. You don't want them to get too flustered or too frustrated, but you do need them to try again or you need them to do it. So oftentimes, like if I'm on a kidney-shaped table, I move my hands to where the child is that's reading the sentence. And I put my finger on whatever word I need them to do again without saying anything. And then as soon as they get it, I say, great job. I loved hearing you sound that out. Mm -hmm. 
you know, or, or if they sound it out and they still don't get it, I say, great job trying to sound that out. I heard these sounds. Let me help. And then I model how to say each sound that's spelled by those letters and then how to blend it. You know, it's just teachable moments. So it's not necessarily having a reading group to have a discussion about literature. We are having a reading group to help children learn how to read. And and it's the big difference between saying reading groups. I, I understand um, the beauty behind the idea that kids need to be reading rich literature. But if we are serious about the fact that kids between TK and second grade are learning to read so that they can read to learn and access all the knowledge in their future academics, we really do need to focus on that learning to read. I'm not saying getting rid of it. Read that gorgeous literature to your kids. Talk about it. Discuss it. I mean, my son, here I am. I'm a reading, you know, I'm in the reading world. And every night I read with him, I don't just teach him how to read. I go to the library and I take out 50 books. You don't books. read decodables at bedtime? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It sounds, sounds a little off, doesn't it? <laughs> no, I go to the library and I, I get a kick out of all the different kinds of literature we can read together and discuss because his background knowledge has to be in place for him to be able to decode words and then understand what he's just read. So I need to talk to him. I need to read these really you know, great books, but why not read it to him? Why put him through it if, if that's not the point of the lesson? You know, so we're, we are kind of pulling apart having a lesson to teach how to read. And then the literature part of our ELA, you know, it's. Yeah, it's different. Mm-hmm. different it's a different space. And yes. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said the point. It's about the purpose. It's about the mm-hmm. purpose of the instructional time and what that time is allotted for. And that is why in you know, grades, uh, grade five, for example, grade eight, for example, you don't have a 30-minute foundational skills block. Right. At that <laughs> point, you might have an intervention block because you mm-hmm. might be remediating the skills that they did not master yeah. or attain yeah. or maybe even receive instruction on in K2. Right. Mm -hmm. So it looks different because it's a different purpose. And so I'm really glad that you named that, Elise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I mean, as far as my books go, they go up through second grade. I know what I'm good at. (laughs) I know I know my role. I know (laughs) where I should be in my (laughs) wheelhouse. So mine are, are our companies are TK through second grade because we are focusing on the read to learn or learn to read. Sorry. Um, and there's some really great ones for um, above levels, but those ones are still focusing on learn to read. They just have an interest level that's higher so that those kids don't feel like they're reading baby books. Not that mine are. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, they're, well, no, they're I mean, really yeah, funny to yeah. an eight-year-old and maybe not as funny to a 10-year-old. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although I still laugh, so I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> it says you're a good writer. <laughs> I think it says that I, I'm at heart, I will always be a K-1-2 t- teacher. <laughs> that too. So I think it might be helpful to think about this idea of a rationale for decodable mm-hmm. text. Like, mm-hmm. what's the argument for decodable text? What's the rationale behind mm-hmm decodable text and just kind of bringing together everything that we've talked about today. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Can I use an analogy? <laughs> of course, I love. I'm gonna, you. I'm gonna pigeon my, <laughs> pigeonhole myself. Um, I Here's say the thing, you, know, you just you after this you have to write a book that is analogies for educators. Totally analogies. Okay, done. <laughs> you know, though, honestly, when you think about talking to parents and you think about talking to others, using analogies is a great way because we're trying to connect to what they know. So that's I'm sure why I do it, but or maybe just. It's my thing. So um, I always think of it like, okay, riding a bike. Um, you will tell kids how to ride the bike. And some of them will actually get up on the bike and just ride it. And it's amazing. And you're in awe. <clears throat> there are going to be some kids that need the training wheels. They need you to hold onto the bars. They need to practice a bunch of times before. And I think that's decodable books. It's not the end game. It's not the riding the bike. It's the, how do I ride the bike? You can't just draw it up on the board and expect kids to be able to do it. Right. You're always going to have kids that can, but for the most part, they're not. So one of the arguments I make for this, this mythical argument that um, kids need rich literature to read, not to have read to them, to read, I say, that's like giving kids really gorgeous bikes they're beautiful and saying, okay, go ride them. Right. You know, some kids are going to fall so many times and they're going to get so frustrated and it's going to be so daunting that they're going to give up. But that riding that bike is going to get them everywhere they need to go in their future. So, you know, yeah. the, the rationale is there. It is there. We, we don't do math and just teach them addition and then walk on to the next subject. We have them practice it. We do it with cubes. We have them, you know, have all these manipulatives. Why is it not the same with, re with reading? Because we're talking about how kids learn how to read. Yeah. We're talking about how kids learn how to do math. Same thing. They have to learn the rationale too. They have to practice it. Um, it has to connect to them. So, oh, look at all these cubes. You know, if we're going to make cookies, you have to know how to do math. Oh, well, you know what? Then I'm going to learn how to do math because I like them <laughs> cookies. <laughs> yeah. I love this analogy because, well, I like, I'm a bike rider. And <laughs> when, I, when I think about the question I asked you about, like, you know, this isn't really the fun part, right, of like being able to just like read a great book with the kid. It reminds me of the same thing of like, you know, my, my child's only three and I yeah. can't wait for the day when I can just like, let's go for a bike ride together. Yeah. Like, it's going to be so fun. <laughs> but right now I'm in the spot of like, he's like, can't push the pedal forward. <laughs> and we are just like over and over again, like get that pedal going around. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it's, I mean, it is not the most fun for me. <laughs> like, no, what, and what do you it. do? It's like, you throw them, you throw them on the handlebars in one of those seats or behind you in one of those seats so that you can give them the beauty of riding the bike, right. the wind on their face, you know, how you can get places. And so we show them how much fun it is. And then we teach them how to do it. And right. it's, you know, like reading. Yeah. And it's just, you got to practice. We just got to uh -huh. practice that, those little things of pushing, <laughs> pushing the pedal forward. There's a lot that again. goes into riding a bike. We don't <laughs> notice it. And, and I, I mean, I have to tell you, I took one of those big tumbles where like, I kind of, I was enjoying it so much that I just went over the handlebars and you know, you learn, <laughs> oh my gosh. You, you still have to practice. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I think we've hit on a lot of these, but I just want to make sure we mm -hmm. have, because I know a lot of people, you know, here people say that, you know, oh, decodable texts, we don't, they're not, they're not good texts. We don't use those or they just mm -hmm. have a bad rap. Um, have, 
I think we've touched on a few things. Yeah, yeah but stilted. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there is there is a piece to that. You do need to do language differently sometimes in decodable books. But I think you have to weigh weigh out what you need. You know, um, if if I'm going to maybe make the sentence structure a little differently in order to allow a child to practice what they know without being overwhelmed, I don't find that as bad as giving them a book full of words that they can't use their skills to read. Um, I would rather have one or two words that's stilted. And you might also say, I mean, anytime a, a teacher says something along those lines, I always say, well, then explain it. You know, we talk to kids about that. Um, I say, you know, what's another way we could say it? But they've read it. And that was, the that was again, the purpose. Like you were saying, that's the purpose of what, what we're trying to do here. Right. And we know that's not... The, the goal forever is not to read those kinds of texts, right? They, they have right. a very specific purpose in this time. There's a, there's an know. ending point. And, right. and you can have kids read other books. Um, I think it's about what you require them to read. So like, I know that we had talked about a little bit about um, nonfiction and the role of nonfiction books. And, and I do get that a lot. Well, then what do you do about nonfiction? And I have to tell you, Kids are not going to be able to read the words that they need to learn. Um, we, we know now we can use much, much more deep vocabulary with our kiddos. I, you know, my six-year-old is talking about a hypothesis. Of course, he didn't say it right. It was very cute. But he's talking about a hypothesis. There is no way he would be able to read that word. But I want him to learn it because we're, we're making little volcanoes. What do you think is mm. going to happen? Hypothesis. <laughs> you know, what's the hypothesis? So... We can't necessarily give them the knowledge that they need from nonfiction early readers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's great when kids peruse it. I think it's great. Like I, I remember, I vividly remember being in the library and looking through the encyclopedias, you know, with all the pictures oh, yeah. on the topics I wanted. And, and then sometimes I would say, what does this say? You know, and get somebody else to read it for me. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, I, and if we create that culture that, that reading is a skill to be taught, but there's so many incredible things. Oh, yeah, that's great. Let me read this to you. I'm so glad you're interested in that. Gosh, one day you'll be able to read it yourself. You know, I mean, it's it's the idea that there's this goal out there, but we can't require kids to learn a topic on their own out of a book that they can't read. You know, and, and it's what makes this a bigger topic in general, because, of course, when you are reading to learn you you have to be able to you have to be able to know how so we're denying access to information when we haven't taught them how to read yes which sadly happens more often than not but we're trying to turn the tables here yes (laughs) i know we're all in all on that bandwagon together right here right now yes Yeah, and I get I give full credit to teachers who are on this road because it is not an easy one. Um, you know, we're shifting because we're shifting the literacy, and I know we've been doing it for a long time, but but now there is a big call to do it. Um, shifting the literacy, it's putting so much more back on the teacher, and I think it's where it should be because we are the professionals in our classroom. This is what we are good at, but it is asking so much more of us because not only do we now need to understand all of the vocabulary behind 
you know, all the pieces of, of words and learning to read, um, we need to be able to apply it based on all of these different little creatures that are in our room mm-hmm. and all of their different needs. Because I might have one child that's fine messing up, make 10 mistakes and be fine, get back up. You know, it's like my kid when he runs into a wall, whoops, you know, <laughs> and that's great. But then the other one might run into a wall and have a complete meltdown. And I've got to manage the two different feelings about making mistakes. That's just, I mean, one example of mm-hmm. of h- how difficult this is, how layered it is um, in teaching to read. So what, now that we're putting this all back on the teacher, it is, I commend them, you know, that they're doing what's right for their kids by, by really looking into how to do it. Yeah. And I think our argument would be that they should get that training that they need. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that they are equipped to do what you're saying. Yes. Even before they get into the classroom. Yes. 100%. Optimally. Optimally before. Optimally. Yeah. That's what we're... You know, though, we're going to work there. All of us. All of us that know how important this is. You know, I'm, I'm watching so many teachers become advocates and so many parents. And it's inspiring to mm-hmm. watch. It really is. Um, I know. Mm-hmm. I know. It's like a, a movement that's happening while mm-hmm. we're in it. So it's really exciting. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elise, is there anything else that you want to mention about decodable well, texts, your decodable texts? Mm. Anything about literacy? <laughs> <laughs> anything about literacy? Um, you know... <sighs> I think that there's this piece about the decodable library and you kind of touched on it and it, it's a big idea. Now we have these decodable libraries and um, I think as, as there's more research done and more people understand what it is we're talking about, more teachers are trained in how to acquire reading skills. Um, we'll be able to have resources like this for teachers Um it's always going to be tricky because it depends on what you're using. And there isn't a ton of research behind the order in which we teach skills. Mm-hmm. There is some, and, and there's some really good studies done. However, I think it's really important to remember we just have to be explicit and we have to match our materials. So you match your decodables to what your kids are learning. Um, but, but there are general categories. So in ours, we have the CVC so we would have a CVC bin, right. you know, and, and kids might not be as good at doing short I as they are as short A, but but it is something they've learned. And so they've got this bin of books that they can read. The confidence that happens when a child can read a book on their own is unreal. Mm-hmm. And again, that's my aha moment. It's not just the aha. It's the piece after it where you watch them devour what they're doing. My son said to me the other night, as we're having this conversation about leveled books. Um, and he says, mom, I can't read. And I said, what do you mean you can't read? I said, you can read, you know, he's got apraxia and autism. So there's some, there's some obstacles. Um, and he's on CVC words. And I said, you too, you can. I said, there's just certain words. So I went and I grabbed a decodable book. Yes. One of mine that he hadn't <laughs> seen. And, um, cause I don't force it on him. And I said, you can read all the words on this page. And he read it. And then he said, the, the next page, mom. And we read the next page and the next page. And then he goes, I want to read another one. And I had to tell my kid it was too late. He had to go to bed. I mean, <laughs> I was overjoyed. Like, like I'm not crying. You're crying. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> but, but you can see how when kids are empowered at their own skills, what, what they can do. 
You know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if we put books in front of them that they can't read again and again and again. They are just going to think they can't read. And then it should not be a shock that there are behavior problems or suspension rates or all of the other symptoms that come from the root cause of making a child feel, I, I don't, I hate saying it this way, but making them feel stupid, you know, because there's such a sad, heartbreaking piece on what goes on inside a child when they feel that way. Um, you know, and I guess there is another thing that I want to talk about. It's that understanding, you know, decodable text is incredible and decodable books are so vital. It's also really important for us as teachers now to just look at words that we are giving kids because there are words in their math word problems. There are words in their science papers. There are words in any kind of history, autobiography, you know, anything they get has words in it it's important for us to start looking at that and call it out to kids. You might not be able to read this. I'm going to help with this or look at, you know, the words on the math um, word problem. And I will circle the words my son can read and I'll say, okay, I'm going to read the rest of these. And then you, you help me with some of these words, please. You know, and then, and then I say the whole thing back. So he actually gets what he's supposed to get from it, which is the math. Um, Mm -hmm. The reading gets in the way, you know, we see that again and again and again um, in, a lot of districts, the math scores are really low. Considering how many word problems my son is bringing home, I am not shocked because the reading is less than 50% in most of these districts. I mean, sorry, I should explain myself. The proficiency level for sure. children yeah. that can read is less than 50% and um, across the country. And so if we're giving them word problems in first grade, I'm not saying anything is wrong with that, but I'm saying we need to be very careful about what we're requiring them to read in order to learn. And in order to show what they know in a mm-hmm. subject that they might know a whole lot about, but right. they cannot decode the problem. Mm-hmm. So it's looking mm-hmm. at all texts and saying, is this decodable? Whether it's a book, whether it's a word problem, whether it's their science, is this decodable for them? Am I reading it to them or are they reading it to me or are they reading it on their own or, or are they just both, reading part of it? Right? Yeah, exactly. Little, yeah. Oh, well, we're so glad that you're here to talk with us about decodable text. And I think we're going to wind this down, right, Melissa? Yeah, ready. I loved it. We have have some fun questions for you to wrap it up. (laughs) Um, These are quick. So whatever comes to your mind. Oh, no. um, Don't be afraid to share. (laughs) So first question is, what do you love to read? I am a fiction girl. So I like being wrapped up in a story. Um, my favorite is Jodi Picoult because she does it from all these different perspectives. And I love having to think about um, stories and, and life from different, different viewpoints. It's like traveling inside someone else. <laughs> I love that. I bet that helps you build empathy for others as well. <laughs> yeah, so it neat. does. It does. And even some very weird, well, I don't want to say weird, but like rare points of view, because, you know, especially having a son on, on the spectrum, um, I'm having to see the world differently all the time. And so I'm very aware that I need mm-hmm. that learning, you know, how other people think is so important. That's amazing. All right. What do you love to watch? 
Hmm. Oh, gosh, my husband would have a field day with this question. I watch terrible television. <laughs> Anything. Me too, Elise. Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> Melissa actually, I feel like, is the only one on here who could take any kind of high road. So go ahead. Not always. I mean, you know, I've been known to dabble in the, the, the documentary every once in a while, especially when it's a topic I like. Um, I'll be excited to watch The Truth About Reading. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah. It's upcoming this Me fall. Too. However, my, my norm are sci-fi movies. (laughs) So like dystopian, like, you know, I guess you could go there, the zombies, like, what does the world look like? (laughs) I I find it so fascinating. (laughs) Like if we were to become zombies, here's what might happen. Yeah, so I'm gonna know. To go. <laughs> yeah, no, right? Not at all. <laughs> I think teachers all need an escape. You know, the world could be a very, you know, you, you get in your head and there's so much to think about. So sometimes having something that is completely out there, um, you know, it's that or it's, it's reality television. It's watching other people's car crash <laughs> lives and, and yeah. thinking, okay, well, at least I'm not there. <laughs> yeah. I know. I was telling my mom about Abbott Elementary because I think it's a great show. Oh, it's but she she works in a school and she's like, I can't watch that until school's over. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, that's too, it's too like my life. I can't yeah. watch it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you love to listen to? I'm I'm super eclectic. It just depends on what I'm doing. So, you know, like you're taking a walk and then I maybe have some techno going, you know bring it back to my old days um or or the 90s hip hop i mean come on yeah. who doesn't yeah, love that's little snoop that's always on my spotify rotation <laughs> mm-hmm. we're um, you know, similar in age <laughs> yeah you can tell right um i live in la so you know i grew up kind of with that with that around me is that that sound and so um i love that but um, yeah, I'm I'm super eclectic, and then I'll watch my I'll be watching something like a an American Idol and be crying. So you never know; just depends on the mood. <laughs> All right, final question here, Elise. All right, why do you do what you love for education or for literacy or both? Mm. That's a really good question, and it's a big one for me because I always knew I was going to be a teacher. Always. I lined up all the stuffed animals. I had the kids in the neighborhood sitting on the lawn, you know, and, <laughs> you know, I may or may not have given out homework. I was <laughs> teaching since the day I started. I went to college for it. Um, I it all the jobs I ever had. I was a camp counselor or somebody that was with children. And um, from the second I was in college, I was doing it. I was working. At, I went to Boston College and I worked at the, the special needs um, school on campus. It's the only one like it in the country. And so that's why I went there. Um, And then I got out and immediately started teaching. I love it because I feel like it's all of these little puzzles. Your brain never stops working when you're in the classroom. I don't get bored. Um, I also really very much believe that teachers... um, we get to have this very special relationship with all our kids. I mean, I think back to my teachers, I think back on how important it is. And, and I mean, I still talk to some of my kids, of course, this is how old I am. They were my kindergartners and now they're out of college. So yeah, that, that hurts a bit. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but like when I said, like Facebook the, friend requesting you, you're like, yes, oh, 
Right. And, and you know what? I'm also so old that I can accept that friend request because there is nothing scandalous on my page. <laughs> I go to bed at eight. <laughs> I yep. play with my kids. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, for me too, it is that aha moment. It's watching kids be excited. And, and just like having my own kids, you get to see the world through someone else's eyes. You get to see them learn the things that you've already learned. And it's so much fun. I also just think it's fun. I think it's fun to be in a classroom. And it's funny, the stories that I have. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the things that, that I, we've all seen in our classrooms, it's just hysterical. And you have to have a sense of humor or sometimes you'd cry. Um, you really do. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. <laughs> but the advocacy piece, I do want to say about that. Um, I think it's so important that, you know, as parents, when we're parents, um, we love our our children, heart and soul. And so, of course, you want them to be okay. But if you have the background knowledge to stand up for other kids that are in those same situations, I think we really all need to. Like I watched as my son um, was in a school where 34% of Hispanic kids learned how to read by third grade. And I'm looking at him with all of his little buddies and I'm thinking, you know, um, these moms have no idea. They don't know. They, you know, they, we all want to trust. We want to trust the people that are loving our children. And, um, and not to say that's wrong, but, but to say that we, we all need to look into what are our school districts using? What are, how are they doing this? Are they supporting their teachers? I mean, that's the other piece is that when I advocate, it's never like, you know, being angry at a teacher. Mm -hmm. They are doing whatever they can to get through the day and take care of our kids in a million different ways. But, but I want them to be supported. I want them to have paid professional development time. I want them to have the skills that they did, you know, and knowledge that they deserve to have because they're the professional. Um, a lot of us just didn't know, you know, mm -hmm. as an educator, I was taught the other way. And I was given my first program and I thought it was the law. And I was told by my administrators what to do. And I expected that they were the experts. Why would they not be doing something that was helpful to kids? And it, you know, it, it took a while and it took a lot of, a lot of love for myself and respect for the fact that I'd done the best I could um, to switch over. So the advocacy is, is not only advocacy, it is supporting the people that are doing it. Not agree more. <laughs> yeah, we At agree. At least bef before we leave, is there? Do you want to share any websites, social media, where people can find you? Oh, oh, yeah. People can can visit our website at www.expressreaders.org. Um, we have all kinds of free downloads. We also have a free online assessment, which we set up, knowing that so many teachers are are kind of going going it on their own um, mm -hmm. and and need that extra little bit of help. Um, but yeah, if it's me that you that you like, um, <laughs> it's at Elise Lovejoy. Basically, on everything I'm on, I don't know. I'm I'm a little old, so sometimes it's <laughs> hard for me to list quickly. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. Well, thank you so much for teaching everybody about some decodable text today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I it's such an important topic, and I'm just so appreciative to have the opportunity to talk about it. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday. Sign up to stay connected with us at literacypodcast.com.
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees.